We sang, we sang this earlier in our gathering. We set it to open our service this morning. The greatest day in history. That is what we are celebrating today. Everything in the Christian faith hinges on this. On what we are here celebrating today. You can ask a lot of questions of the Bible. You can puzzle and puzzle over some of the mysteries of the Bible. Our faith does not hinge on the age of the earth. Our faith does not hinge on where dinosaurs are in the Bible. Our faith doesn't hinge on, on how there was a catastrophic flood that happened. Our faith hinges on one thing. Did Jesus rise from the dead? The Bible says Paul, who gave up everything in his life that was meaningful to be a Christ follower, said, if there's no resurrection from the dead, if Jesus was not resurrected, then my preaching is foolishness and you should pity Christians. You know, there's that old, I think it's Pascal's wager, I think it is, but it's that old saying of, you know, I'd rather live like there's a God and die and find out there's not than to live like there's not one and die to find out there is. The Bible says, if there's no resurrection, then to give your life to the Christian faith is foolish. But then Paul went on to say, but there was a resurrection. And because of that, Jesus is Lord. And everything He says and everything He tells us to believe and to do matters. And every knee will bow one day to Him. Every tongue will confess that He is Lord because He arose with freedom in hand. That's what we sang today. Luke was a physician and he was a historian. He, he wrote the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. And he says very clearly that his reason for writing is he wants to give a detailed account about Jesus. He went around and he talked to eyewitnesses. He talked to apostles. He studied what had happened. And he wrote these things down because he wanted to give an accurate account of the life of Jesus. And his account of the resurrection that we read this morning gives us a very good picture of that day. But to get a full picture of that day, to get a full picture of the morning of the resurrection, we can harmonize what we see in all four gospel accounts. Matthew, and Mark, and Luke, and John. And here's what we see. Jesus is crucified, and He dies on Friday. And He needs to be quickly buried, because Friday evening is the beginning of the Sabbath for the Jews. And so, in order for the Romans to keep the Jews happy and peaceful, they cannot execute anyone on the Sabbath. So Jesus has died, and now He needs to be buried quickly. So He is placed in a tomb. That tomb belonged to a man named Joseph. 
Luke tells us of Arimathea. And the Gospels tells us of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy member of the Jewish council. And at that time, he was secretly a follower of Jesus. He had not yet made the fact that he loved Jesus known. And we're told that it was a brand new tomb. Luke tells us that. Other gospel accounts tells us that it was a tomb near a garden. What that means is that when they wrote these letters, these facts were verifiable. These letters were written, some of them just 20 years after the death of Jesus. It would have been easy for those who were reading this to go to that place and find it. Where is the tomb of Joseph and his family? It's near a garden. Is there a body there? All of this was verifiable. This burial arrangement, which happened very quickly and seemed to be just a, just a part of the day, actually was prophesied 700 years earlier by Isaiah, who said that the suffering servant, the Messiah, would die as if he was wicked, but he would be buried as if he was rich. He's placed into a rich man's tomb, wrapped in expensive linen cloths and fragrant spices. Saturday is the Sabbath, which is a day of rest for the Jews. So the women who followed Jesus went and saw where He was laid, and they wanted to give Him a proper burial and anoint His body, but they would have to wait. They couldn't do that on the Sabbath. So they rested Meanwhile, trained Roman military soldiers are placed outside of the tomb. This is not, this is not just some thrown together militia that has been sent by the chief priest to guard the tomb because they knew Jesus had said, I'll die and I'll be raised again in three days. And they were afraid the disciples would come and steal his body and try to make up the fact that he'd been resurrected. So they went to the Romans and said, we need soldiers. These were the best of the best of that day. And they were placed outside of the tomb. And they put a large stone over it. And then they gave it a military seal to show its integrity. Saturday evening, the Sabbath ends. And as soon as the Sabbath ends on Saturday evening, the women began to journey. It's still dark, and they're taking ointment and spices to properly anoint the body of Jesus. And the Gospels tell us as, as they're traveling, they're talking to themselves. What are we going to do when we get there? How, how, how are we going to get in the tomb? Who's going to roll the stone away f- for us? Who's going to do that? But the Gospels say before their arrival... God resolves that issue. The earth shakes. Angelic beings appear. And the stone is rolled away. And those well-trained military men, the Bible says, were paralyzed with fear. They couldn't move. They were so afraid of what they saw. The women arrive at early dawn on Sunday and they find this empty tomb. They are shocked by what they see. But they also see these angels and the angels ask them a question. Why? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. 
He's risen. Why are you looking for someone who is alive in a graveyard? You're not going to find him here. He's risen. And the angels say, go in and see. Go in and see where he was buried. Go in and see where he was laying. And so they go in. This is not a spiritual resurrection only. This is not the type of thing that you can't see where the body's still there, but he's been resurrected in a spiritual form. No, this is bodily, physical resurrection. He is gone. He's not there. And what is there are these linen cloths. This is not the work of grave robbers. Because if so, they would have never left those valuable pieces behind. This is resurrection. Jesus is alive. These women, they depart in fear and great joy, the Bible says. And they run to tell the eleven apostles what had happened. Judas, who betrayed Jesus on Friday, is probably dead at this point. He's hung himself. There are eleven that remain. They reach Simon Peter first, the one who said, I'll I'll never forsake you, yet denied Jesus three different times with cursing. They reach him and John, the beloved. And they tell them the body's gone. And they say, we don't know what they did with the body, which means the women are astonished, but they don't yet believe. And they tell it to the other disciples as well. Not just Peter and John. And the Bible says the other disciples listened, but it seems to them like nonsense. This was not a well-orchestrated plan. This was not clear to them what was going to happen. They are hearing that Jesus is gone, that His body is gone, and the angels have said He's alive. But even the apostles who heard all of His teaching, to them it seems like this is nonsense. But Peter and John have to go see. And John says they run. John also says that they run for a while together. But eventually he outruns Peter and gets there first. Which tells us, number one, these are very detailed accounts. And number two, that men really have not changed in 2,000 years. Because I'm just going to throw in that I beat him in that race. And I got there first. And John and Peter get there and they see the empty grave and the Bible says they are astonished, but they still do not fully understand what has happened. Those Roman guards, they go to the chief priest and they tell the chief priest what has happened. And the chief priest talk about it among themselves and they come back to the guards and they say, here's what we want you to do. We need you to tell people that in the middle of the night, His disciples came and stole the body. The very thing the guards were there to stop from happening, the chief priests now say, we need you to tell people that's what happened. And these Roman guards would be executed for that. They would be executed for neglect of duty, and the chief priests say to them, we'll take care of it with your superiors. We will give you money, and we'll take care of it with them. And the Bible says that those guards did exactly that. And to the day that these Gospels were written, 
the rumor that Jesus' body had been stolen by His disciples was still among the Jews because of the chief priest and the Roman guards. Meanwhile, Jesus begins to appear. The first eyewitness that we know of to see Jesus is Mary Magdalene. And then, after her, other women of this group. This is further proof, something that we would miss in our day, but this is further proof that this is not just mere ancient legend. Because in that culture, in that day, a woman's testimony was not admitted in legal context. It would not be received or accepted. Therefore, if you were determined to make up a story, if you were determined to make up a legend, you would not make women in that culture the first of the eyewitnesses. But that's how the Gospel writers put it, because that's what happened. We know that sometime before that evening, Jesus would appear to Peter, privately, in a meeting that we know nothing about other than it happened. And it is at this point that Luke, and only Luke, tells us the story of two travelers. Leaving Jerusalem on that very day, headed to a village named Emmaus. They are not apostles. They are likely part of this contingent of men and women from Galilee that are mentioned at the death of Jesus in Luke 23, 49. They are called acquaintances. Probably not followers, but people who have some connection to Jesus and were there at His death. And the Bible introduces us to these two travelers and they, the Bible says that they are mulling over everything that they have heard has happened this morning. All of these events that we just talked about, these two travelers are walking and they're talking and discussing. And it's, it's funny that they're talking and discussing if you really know what that word means. It reminds me when I was started dating my wife years and years ago. And for many, many months, we had no arguments. We never fought. And that was a real source of pride for me. And I used to tell people, uh, Alice and I, we don't fight about anything. Over time, people started pointing out to me that I kind of heard some conversations between the two of you that sounded a little heated. I'm not sure that that's accurate. And I would say, no, 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 those aren't arguments. Those are discussions. We're just discussing things. This word discussing in the Bible denotes a very serious animated debate. They are talking and debating They are talking and arguing about the things that have happened that day. And while they are doing that, Jesus draws near them. And He joins them. And I just want you to pause for a moment and think, why? Why these two travelers? Anyone in the world... I get makes sense, Mary Magdalene... It makes sense some of the women who played such an important role in Jesus' ministry. It makes sense for Peter. Why these two? Of all the people in the world, of all the people who 
watched his death. Why these two? Jesus doesn't just appear to them for a moment. Based on this passage, he spends significant time with them. They're traveling seven and a half miles. We don't know exactly how long Jesus walked with them, but he spends significant time with them. Why? And I love the fact that we're not told why. To you and I, it seems random, right? But it is graciously sovereign. And we can even ask of ourselves, why me, God? Why have you chose to open my eyes to the gospel? Why have you chose to give me a heart that believes? Why have you chose to allow me to be someone who follows you? He is graciously sovereign. We're not given any details about these travelers. We know one of their names. That's it. And that's probably because that's the one that gave the account to Luke later. We don't even know today where Emmaus was. That's debated. Can't really even find it on the map. It was seven and a half miles from Jerusalem. That's all that's really known. And the reality is, none of that matters. Because see, here's what we get to do. You and I, we get to put ourselves in the place of these two travelers. Because they are living their life and they're walking their road. They are sad. They are confused. They are frustrated. They are disillusioned. And they are trying to escape chaotic circumstances and seek peace. And in the middle of that, Jesus kindly and sovereignly goes to them. All of us are walking to our own Emmaus. All of us find ourselves sad, confused, frustrated, disillusioned at life, at people, at circumstances, at God. We're on our Emmaus road. And we're invited to realize that while we feel these same emotions, and while we try to escape the chaos of this life, Jesus kindly and sovereignly comes to us. And this word invites us to focus on the Christ that still meets bewildered travelers in order to radically transform their life. Understand, Jesus doesn't come to visit with us to make us a little better. He doesn't come to visit with us to just fix a few things. Jesus comes to radically transform us. There is not salvation without the willingness to pick up your cross, die to yourself, and follow Him. There is not salvation without a willingness to have your mind renewed, the Bible says. And that word renewal means renovation. Think about what it means to renovate something. When you renovate something, you go in 
and you tear out what is old. You tear out what is broken. You tear out what is unhealthy. You tear out what is useless. And in its place, you put something new. Something that's been rebuilt. Something that works right. Something that is useful. And the Bible says the gospel renews our mind, renovates our mind, tears out what is old and puts in what is new. So I want to say to us one more time, on this Easter Sunday, in this room, on this live stream, or later watching this recording, if you are sad, if you are brokenhearted by what has happened in this world to you and around you, if you're confused by your circumstances, if you're frustrated with people and with God, if you're disillusioned with how you thought your life would go and it hasn't turned out the way you wanted it to, these two travelers on this road represent you. And I want you to observe what Jesus does for them. And I want you to know that He is calling today to you that He might do the same in your life that He does for them. This morning, we're going to walk through an outline. There was some notes in your worship guide. We have the very good problem of having ran out of worship guides this morning, but thankfully, a servant went and made more copies and put them on the back table. So if you didn't get a worship guide and you want the notes to fill in, there are some back there on the table that you can grab up. Let's make some observations about these two travelers on the road to Emmaus, and let's consider what these observations mean for us. First of all, Jesus is much nearer to us than we often realize. Jesus is much nearer to us than we often realize. In verse 15 and 16, we're told that as they're talking and discussing about all these things that have happened on this day, Jesus draws near to them. I, I don't know how this happened. Maybe Jesus just walks up and He's like, Hey guys, what's up? How you doing? I'm going to walk with you for a while. That sounds like the work of an extrovert, right? So just I'm going to input myself into this conversation and I'm going to keep going. Those of us that are introverts, we're like, that sounds horrible. That sounds horrible. That's what Jesus did. And we're, we're told in verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. Which means they're purposefully being blinded by Jesus so they can't recognize Him. I think there's a reason for that I'll share in a moment. But what I want us to realize is that you and I, too, often fail to perceive Jesus in the midst of our daily travels. We often fail to perceive where He is in the midst of our sadness and our frustration and our disillusionment. We're just living our life. We're just doing what we know to do. And sometimes we're living out our mistakes. And then sometimes we're living out the sins of others and their consequences. And we get focused on our trials. We get focused 
on what we're aggravated about. We get focused on what needs to be fixed. We get focused on what our needs are and how we're going to resolve it. We get focused, tunnel vision, on the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And we totally fail to perceive where Jesus is in the midst of that. Maybe Jesus for us is at church on Sundays. Maybe He's in a podcast we listen to. Maybe He's in our quiet time in the mornings. But we're not listening and perceiving where He is in the midst of our day. That could be true of those who don't know Christ at all. It's certainly true of them. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens. And as he's in Athens, he is traveling around and he comes to this comes to this place in Athens where he finds this altar with an, an inscription to the unknown God. Athens was so, it was so covered up in idolatry. And they had all of these different statues to all of these different gods that they knew their names. But then they were afraid, well, what if there's a God out there that we don't actually know His name? We better put up an altar to Him as well. That way we don't anger Him. So they put up an altar to the unknown God. And Paul, using this as an illustration to meet the people of Athens where they are, he says, I see that you have an altar to an unknown God. And there is a God that you don't know, so let me tell you about Him. And in the midst of that, he tells them that this God made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, and He does not live in a temple made by man. And He is not served by human hands as though He needed anything, because He Himself gives to mankind life and breath and everything. The Bible says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Here's the fear of the Lord. He needs nothing from you. You need everything from Him. Paul goes on to say, this God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Let me pause there. Nations rise and fall, and we give credit to people and history for that. And the Bible says, actually, undercurrent of all of those things is the sovereignty of God who has determined allotted periods of time for every nation on the earth and the people who would live in them and their boundaries. You were born at a particular time in a particular place and it was not happenstance or circumstance. It was determined by God. And why did He do that? Verse 27 in Acts 17 says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him because yet He is actually not far from each one of us. Paul says, God has so ordered your life that you might find Him. He has so ordered the circumstances of your life that you might reach out to Him. Listen, That thing that happened to you 
that you hate the most in this life, that you are so saddened by and so disillusioned by and so angry at God by, may have been the very thing that happened because God is trying to bring you to Himself. It was the thing that He did in order that you might reach out to Him. And that might trouble you in your flesh, but somewhere in your spirit, it needs to reach your heart that He loves you that much. Don't fail to perceive Him. That the very thing you might shake your fist at Him about is the thing that He is using in your life to bring you into His love. We fail to perceive Jesus often, even in the Christian life. We fail to perceive Him. The goal of the Christian life should be to grow in our moment-by-moment recognition of God. All of us as Christians, we have moments like these two travelers do, where we reach a point and we look back and we say, Oh, I see now. I see what God was doing now. I see where Jesus was now. But here's the goal of our Christian life, and that is to grow to a place to where it's not just weeks or months or years down the road that we recognize the work of Jesus, but we see it as it's happening. We perceive Him in every moment. Even if we don't know exactly what He's doing, we perceive He's there. Jesus who said, I'm always with you. Would it not radically change our lives if we could perceive Christ in every moment of our day? Would it not radically transform our lives if we could perceive Jesus in every circumstance? Jesus is much nearer to us than we often realize. This second observation of these travelers to Emmaus that I want us to apply to ourselves is that our blindness to God and our blindness to His kingdom is called caused by limited or lack of faith. Our blindness to God and His kingdom is caused by limited or lack of faith. Now, I I put limited there because when I went to put lack of faith, I paused for a moment. And I'll tell you why. There's a certain part of Christianity that teaches there's certain things that happen to you. Certain things that you don't have because you don't have enough faith. If you just had enough faith, then those bad things wouldn't happen. And then the end result of that is, go have more faith, and God will give you all the stuff He wants to give you. And that's total bunk. But it's not false to say that our blindness to God and His kingdom is caused by small or limited faith. Sometimes, it's not faith that we need to make sure good things happen. It's faith that we need to make sure that we don't get crushed in the middle of bad things happening. And that faith is not coming from us. That faith comes from Jesus. Faith is a gift. We're not told how Jesus inserted Himself in this walk. As we've already mentioned, but He does ask them. He says to them, Guys, And I'm using that term loosely because it could have been a man and a woman. But he he looks at them and says, what's this conversation you're having? Seems pretty passionate. You're getting a little animated. 
I heard you. What are you talking about? And they stop. And they have this very sad countenance about them. And they look at Jesus and they say, Are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know these things that have happened in these days? Which is funny. And Jesus plays along, somewhat humorously maybe, and He says, What things? Tell me, guys, what happened? So they began to tell Jesus about Jesus. They call Him a prophet. A mighty prophet in deed and word before God. Again, acquaintances of Jesus. They have a connection with Him. But it's not an accurate connection yet. And they say to Him, we had hoped that this Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. If you were here last week, Kevin Small preached on our Palm Sunday message and he talked about how sometimes we miss Jesus because we're looking for the wrong Jesus. These two travelers were looking for the wrong Jesus. They had been looking for the conquering King Jesus. Not the one who would suffer and die. And Jesus gets serious with them in verse 25. And He says, guys, this is your issue. You are slow to believe God. You are slow to believe what God has said. You've read it, but you don't believe it. And that is why you can't perceive what is happening right now. That's why you can't perceive what God is doing. That's why you can't perceive this kingdom. That's why you don't believe the testimonies of these people who have said that the tomb is empty and Jesus appeared to them. You don't believe it because you don't believe what God has written. Our inability to understand what God is doing often comes from our limited faith. You and I tend to think that the difficulties we have, the problems that we have with circumstance, with people, with relationships, we tend to think it's all natural and it all has natural solutions. And God says, actually, it's rooted in the amount of faith you have. It's rooted in the amount of belief that you have in what you've already read. A lot of us, We're well-versed in the Bible, but what we may not yet be well-versed in is grabbing a hold of what we're reading and believing it with all of our hearts. Little faith keeps us from seeing God clearly. There's a missionary friend that some of you have in this room and some of you in this room are familiar with who is going through a tremendous, unbelievable trial in a foreign country right now. And when I say unbelievable trial, I mean being called in and interrogated for four times by local officials wanting to know, why are you here? And being told, we're about to throw you out. Someone who has this ministry that has been a blessing to many, many people and who's Departure from this country would result in great sorrow to a lot of people as well as seemingly, in our eyes, hopeless circumstances. 
I read something that this missionary wrote this morning I wanted to read to you. She talked about in the midst of this trial that she's going through, in the midst of being told, come back this Monday and we'll let you know what's going to happen to you, that she has had tremendous joy. And she shared this, that the biggest insight that I've received during this time relates to an acute awareness of God's sovereignty over all things. We think we know this, but then we worry about something, which reveals we don't actually know this at all. If we were really convinced about God's heart, if we were really convinced about God's character, if we were really convinced about God's power, if we were really convinced about God's authority, if we were really convinced about God's sovereignty over all things, then we would never worry or fear anything. Jesus would sometimes look at His disciples and say, You have little faith. And it almost seems like this rebuke. It almost seems like this, Come on guys, get it together. But I believe the Bible shows us faith is a gift. What was Jesus saying when He says, Guys, you got little faith right now. He's saying, Come get more faith. Ask Me. Receive from Me. Run to me. Pray that I would increase your faith. Pray that you would receive the gift of faith. Pray that it would increase. Pray that you would believe. Pray that you would increase in believing because the more you increase in faith, the more you increase in believing what God is doing, His Word, the more you grab a hold of that, the more you are going to be able to see what God is doing in and around you. And what we know, even as I'm saying, it only comes by God. We still ask, how does God increase our faith? So I want to make this observation number three. No miraculous circumstance, no accumulated knowledge has the power to correct our heart. No miraculous circumstance, no amount of accumulated knowledge has the power to correct our heart. Why did Jesus not allow these two travelers to recognize Him? Why did He blind them so they couldn't recognize Him? The Bible doesn't tell us, so I can't give you a very firm, absolute answer. But here's what I'll say. Maybe, maybe, if Jesus had allowed them to immediately recognize Him as the risen Savior, they would have simply went back to seeking Him as that conquering King that they were looking for all along. Maybe in that moment, they would have immediately embraced Him and said, Yes, you're alive! Okay, you're taking over Israel again, right? We'll go with you. See, simply seeing someone resurrected is not enough to change someone's heart. We already know this because Jesus told a parable, Luke 16, about a rich man who died, who was wicked, and a poor man who died, who was righteous. And the rich man went to Hades, and the 
poor man went to be with God. And he said he went to be with Abraham. And there this, in this parable or in this story, this conversation takes place between the rich man in Hades and the, and Father Abraham in heaven. And the rich man says, will you let the poor man come and just quench my thirst? And Abraham says, no, that's not possible. And then the rich man says, well, will you at least do this? Will you send him back? Send him back from the dead to talk to my brothers and warn them about this place. And Abraham says, they have the Bible. They have the Old Testament. They have Moses and the prophets. And if they won't believe them, they won't believe someone who's risen from the dead. You and I often think, if God would just do this, I would believe He exists. You and I often think, if God would just take care of this, I would believe He loves me. If He would cure this or get rid of this, then I would believe He exists and I would follow Him. If He would fix my marriage, if He would fix my finances, if He would fix this issue, I would believe He loves me. And God says, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. You would just move on to the next thing. Because you see, miracles have a place. Signs and wonders have a place. They are evidence of God's power. They are affirming of His Word. But miracles alone do not change hearts. That's why churches and denominations that are built solely on or primarily on the chasing of miracles do not convert people very well. And when those miracles don't happen or when the miracles cease, those people fall away because they were not chasing Jesus, they were chasing the miracles. At the same time, simply accumulating knowledge is not enough to change your heart. You will never fact-check your way into God's kingdom. You will never collect enough evidence, enough facts to convince your heart that God is real and you should follow Him. It is a... It is a pointless journey. That doesn't mean there are not facts. I believe there is grand evidence from the gospel of the authenticity of the resurrection of Jesus. But you will not convince yourself of it by mere knowledge. These travelers had knowledge. Jesus didn't say to them, here's your problem, guys. You've not read the Scriptures. He didn't say that. He said, here's your problem. You're slow to believe the Scriptures. So how does our faith grow? Look at verse 27. What did Jesus do? Without revealing to them who He was, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Which leads us to this fourth observation. God has blessed the hearing of His Word applied by the Spirit of Christ and affirmed by the testimony of the saints with the power to heal us. God has blessed the hearing of His Word, applied to your life by the Spirit of Christ, affirmed to your heart by the testimony of the saints. God has blessed that Word with the power to heal your heart. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes through the Word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. God has chosen to anoint His Word. He has chosen to anoint His Gospel about Jesus to heal our hearts. His Word goes out 
we hear it. And that Word is carried by His Spirit and it's applied to us. And that work of God opens our eyes and we receive the testimony of that Word and all of the miracles of the saints in Scripture. Look at what happened to these two men. We didn't read this far in the opening passage. Look at verse 28 in Luke 24. Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted them and all the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if He was going to go further, but they urged Him strongly, saying, Stay with us. Look at this. They didn't know who Jesus was, but they didn't want Him to leave. He had been interpreting Scripture to them, talking to them about the Messiah and pointing them to the Messiah in Scripture, and they did not want Him to leave. Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did our hearts burn? Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? I want to ask you a question. If these two travelers were saved, when were they saved? When Jesus went in to have the meal with them, and He starts breaking bread with them, their eyes were opened, and they realized who He was. The Bible doesn't say, and they believe. The Bible says they recognized Him. And then they looked at each other and said, have our hearts not been burning since He started opening the Scriptures to us. If these men, or if these two travelers were saved, I think they were saved when Jesus was opening to them the Scriptures. Thomas said, I'll never believe if I don't see. Jesus told Thomas, blessed will be all of those who believe who do not see. You do not yet need to see the risen Christ to believe with all of your heart that He exists and He is Lord. You need the Scriptures applied by the Spirit of Christ to your heart, testified by the saints. Would it not be amazing if we knew what Jesus said to them? Maybe He went to Genesis and started in the garden. Maybe He talked about Abraham and Isaac. Maybe He took them to Joseph in his slavery. Maybe He took them to the Exodus with Moses. Maybe He went to Judges. On and on. Would you not love to know what Jesus said to them? But I want to ask you a more important question. Do you not believe that Jesus still teaches us like He did these two travelers? Do you not believe that He still meets you where you are and opens up to you His Scriptures to show you that they are about Him? If you don't believe that, would you believe that today as you hear His words shared when the gospel goes out, when a passage is taught, when you end up in a church listening to someone speaking, when you see someone posting a verse on Facebook, you read something, you hear something, and all of a sudden God opens your eyes and your mind. Maybe you've read it a dozen times, but in a moment you see something you've never seen before. Where does that come from? The risen Christ is near you, teaching you His Word. 
The Spirit of Christ is with you, teaching you His Word. When you open this Bible, when you have the time, when you make the time to open it up and to read it, do you pray and ask Jesus, be with me and show me? Do you listen when He speaks? Do you listen to Him when He speaks or do you turn a deaf ear Do you convince yourself it's not really Him, it's just coincidence? Do you put yourself in a place every day to encounter Jesus and grow in your faith? Do you cause, do you put yourself in a place to cause Him to be able to show you and increase your faith so that you could perceive Him more? Here's one way we know this last observation. Evidence of our heart's joy in Christ. Evidence of our spending time with Jesus. Evidence of our growing faith in Him is displayed in the excitement with which we share about Him to others. Look at verse 33 and 35. What happens to these two travelers after Jesus vanishes? They rose that same hour. They probably didn't even finish their meal. And what did they do? They went back where they'd come from. They weren't planning to do this. And I imagine they didn't walk those seven or seven and a half miles. I I imagine they ran. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. And those eleven were saying, The Lord has risen indeed and He's appeared to Simon. Somewhere in that day, Luke tells us, he'd, He'd saw Peter. And if you keep reading the end of this gospel, you will see that He's about to appear to all of them. But those two travelers tell those eleven what had happened on the road and how He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. They could not wait to go tell someone. They could not go, they could not wait to go tell the community of faith. They could not wait to go share what had happened. Church, listen. You can fake a lot of things. You can fake knowledge. You can fake everything's okay. I got it all together. You can fake nothing's wrong inside of here. Nothing's wrong inside of my marriage. Nothing's wrong inside of my heart. You can pretend. Easter Sunday, it's, it's, this is a blessed day. A lot of us, we dress up a little nicer on Easter. We're probably going to leave here. We're going to go take pictures. Some of you, your grandparents, you're going to torture the grandkids before they can eat, before they can do games. they got to line up. they got to get their photos. Some of you have already done that this morning. It may have caused an argument on the way to church. Who knows? You can fake smiles. You can dress up real nice. Here's what you can't fake. Excitement about Jesus. People close to you know what you love. People close to you know what excites you. People close to you know what you're about. Joy spills over. Joy doesn't stay in your heart. It spills out of your heart. It leads to action. You act out of what you're passionate about. You give yourself to what's on the throne of your heart. You don't have to convince yourself to do those things. You do them because you love them. Growing faith 
is not just perceiving Christ, it's enjoying Christ. Listen, don't walk away and think, okay, well, here's what David preached on today. I need to be happier in Jesus, so let me go home and do some exercises that I can somehow figure out how to be happier in Jesus. No, it's asking Jesus for more faith. With that more faith will come more joy. With more joy will come more excitement that will spill over from your life to others. If you want boldness for Christ, don't just try to figure out how to have boldness. Seek more faith. Seek more joy. No one has to tell you to be bold about something you love. You're just bold about it. I try to... Everything I preach, everything I teach on, ask the Lord, what do you want me to share? Easter Sunday is always hard for me. Like I... In terms of, I, you think people want me to talk about the resurrection in a new and different way than we haven't talked about it before. Like, I need to try to make it interesting. It's got to be special. Those are the things that you wrestle with as a pastor. And two weeks ago, I got a gift. And that gift was just out of nowhere. I thought about Easter Sunday and immediately, out of the blue, I felt... Road to Emmaus. I'll be honest with you, I didn't even go read it to remember exactly what it said. I just, I became convinced that was what I was going to preach on. I think when Rob does our prayer focuses, he does something similar. I encourage you every week to not just ignore what we're praying for that week. I, I encourage you to take those focuses and put them before you in the upcoming week because I think they're from God. Does anyone remember the prayer focus from this past week? Pray that the Lord would reveal more of Himself to us. That the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, might give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. Worship team, you can come up. We're going to end with a question. Well, I'm going to end talking with a question. And then we're going to respond to God's Word. Here's the question. Today, in this place, on this live stream, would you be willing to cry out to God with an expectation that He will answer? I believe. Help my unbelief. Do you remember the dad who sought healing for his son from Jesus? He went to Jesus with his son and he said, Jesus, if you can heal him, will you? And Jesus said, if I can, all things are possible for those who believe. And the dad cried out, then I believe. But would you please help my unbelief? One of the most sincere statements, I think, in all of the interactions Jesus had with people in his day. If you guys would, would you bring the lights down?
First of all, in this room, can you say, on this live stream, can you say, I believe? I believe in the risen Christ. I believe in His power over death. I believe that because He was raised to new life, that I can be as well. Are you willing to confess that today? Maybe for the first time. Or maybe if it's not for the first time, maybe it's the first time sincerely. I say this almost every week. I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking if you have a background in the church. I'm asking, do you believe? And would you be willing today to confess you believe in Jesus and you want to follow Him? And you're not going to know about what all that means and you're not supposed to. You're on the road. You're sad, you're confused, you're bewildered, you're frustrated. And Jesus is meeting you where you are and He is saying, will you believe? And He can do a lot with that confession. I want to ask you this morning, would you be willing in just a moment to come and let some people pray with you? If you're confessing belief in Christ, would you be willing to come and let some people pray? Let someone know. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to introduce you in front of everybody. Unless you just want to be. But I'm just asking, would you be willing to come and and just say, "I, I believe. I've never confessed it before. I've never confessed it in this way before. If you're on the live stream, if you want to talk to a pastor, we'll put a a phone number in the live stream. You can text us. I'll get with you later today. My other question is, would you be willing to cry out, God, help my unbelief? God, would you increase my faith? I see where my struggles are. I see where I am wrestling. I need more faith. I have wandered from you. I am disinterested in you. You are not what sits on the throne of my heart, but I know you should be. I'm not excited about you. God, would you increase my faith? I'm not bold for you. Would you increase my faith? Would you be willing this morning to pray for that?